I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's being able to be alone without being in survival mode. Like the really restorative alone time that's, I think, separate from loneliness is finding safety in being alone and not experiencing aloneness as an adversive experience or an experience that's beginning to make you more jaded, more cynical of others. I think that is really the sweet spot of alone time. Like we want connection where we can access safety around others. And we want alone time where we can access safety within ourselves. Welcome to another season of Alonement, the podcast about the time you spend alone and why it matters. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, author of Alonement, How to Be Alone and Absolutely Own It, and a former extreme extrovert who, a few years ago, discovered the life-changing power of taking some time to myself. On this show, I interview fascinating people who can give inspiration and practical advice on how to make your alone time the best it can be. Because when alone time isn't lonely, it's alonement. Dr. Marissa G. Franco is a psychologist, friendship expert, and author of the brilliant new book, Platonic, How Understanding Your Attachment Style Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. This is a podcast about alone time, but as we'll go on to discuss, Marissa believes that we all need to use different tools in order to support our well-being. Sometimes that tool is alone time, which we need in moderation, but other times that's connection. Nurturing close friendships, at least in my experience, is an underrated yet transformative way to improve the quality of connection in your life. And as Marissa explains, it even supports your ability to feel safe and secure in your alone time. This was the final conversation I had for season seven, and it was honestly a conversation I'll remember forever. I hope that you get as much from it as I did. Before we get to the episode, I want to give a big shout out to this season's sponsor, Flashpack travel company for solo travelers in their 30s and 40s, providing boutique group adventures all around the world. There's trips to Bali, Morocco, Sri Lanka, Japan, the world is your oyster. I've been working with Flashpack since the beginning of this year, and last April I had the chance to experience one of their adventures for myself, traveling the hotspots of Colombia. I made so many new friends, many of whom I'm still in touch with, 
and had the kind of colourful, memorable experiences I'd been craving for the past couple of years of lockdown, including salsa dancing, boat trips, and eating delicious South American cuisine. What's incredible about going away with Flashpack is that you get the best of both worlds. Wonderful company, if you'd like it, and the ease of having someone else sort out the logistics, but also the independence of choosing where and when you'd like to have an adventure. If you'd like to experience a Flashpack holiday for yourself, they've provided an exclusive discount offer to all Alonement listeners. Quote the code ALONEMENT to give you £100 off your dream trip today. Dr. Marissa G. Franco, thank you so much for coming on. My first question, what's your relationship with alone time? Oh my gosh, I love alone time. I feel sometimes like I'm like a weird person just because of how much I crave it and how much I love it. And especially someone who studies friendship. I don't know. It feels like sometimes the assumption can be that I want to be around people all the time. But I think being around people regulates my mood, but also being alone regulates my mood. And it really helps me reflect on how I actually think and feel about things because being around others, I I just feel like as humans, social creatures, we just always want to conform to how how other people think and feel. And it it gets really difficult to like really understand yourself without alone time, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it comes from a nice place, doesn't it? In a way, but you know, I have a friend who, uh, she's so empathetic that she actually starts speaking in someone's accent like she she'll be you know she'll, she's from the south of England she'll be regional northern just to fit in with them because she's so wonderfully empathetic with how someone speaks and wants to sort of mirror but it it really does come to play doesn't it if you don't spend that time alone you don't then remember that you're actually a southerner or <laughs> you're from the south of England in this case or you know that who you are fundamentally yeah I would definitely say so like it's hard to understand what you think what you feel, how things have been affecting you without having that time alone, just because other people are such, such heavy stimulants for us, right? They just bring out all these different things in us, which is great in some ways, but um, I think it just, it also means that we just need that counterpoint sometimes. Yeah. But that's, I'm always looking for a nice way to sell alone time. And I think telling someone, oh, you're just so stimulating. I'm so stimulated by your company. I can't remember. I forget myself. You know, that's quite a nice way to exit the room, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, especially for us introverts, you know, like introverts, for example, it just takes more energy to shift from being alone to socializing with other people. So we tend to like more scheduled fun instead of people just dropping in on us. And, you know, I think other people are even more stimulating for introverts. So It just becomes more important to spend that time alone. And it's natural and it's normal. Well, it is natural. And I was reading back on some of the pieces that you'd written for Psychology Today uh, during the pandemic. And I think this was maybe as we were sort of easing out of the lockdowns, you wrote an article that said, you you can stop forcing yourself to socialize. And you cited this study from the Netherlands, which said, effectively, we get the same benefits from moderate socializing that you know, we'll get from frequent socializing. And and actually it it can be a sort of diminishing returns if we, if we take a more is more approach. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, that was a really interesting study that as far as I recall, it's been a while since I've read it, found that, you know, social interaction, we know benefits our well-being. We know makes us happier, right? The research is really incontrovertible on that. 
But this study really looked into like, what's the right dose? I think we always might assume more is better. And it, it basically found that when we socialize moderately, which if I'm remembering correctly, was about once a week, that increases our overall satisfaction and happiness, similarly to if we continue to socialize even more. So I think that was my permission, because especially after the pandemic, I felt so tired from social interaction. And I think a lot of people felt very overwhelmed, you know, how, going from not seeing anyone to trying to see people all the time, because all of a sudden we can and we have to take advantage of it. I guess that was sometimes I use research as permission. <laughs> so reading that study, I was like, I have permission to pull back and not have to push myself to socialize at, a, at amounts that don't feel don't feel good for me anymore. I love that concept of using research as permission. I think, yeah, we all do. Often I cite it with alone time. You know, I've seen this study that says actually we benefit from from taking it alone. That was almost almost with my book because I came to it as an extrovert. I had no one had ever told me that alone time was a positive thing. So I, when I, you know, started getting the sort of, I don't know, non-academic hypothesis in my own head that it might be, it might be useful. I did look to research in order to get that uh, permission slip. Do you think that there's any, because obviously I know that you're an academic and you, you know, you work as a professor, you work in these fields, you know how this all works in terms of uh, getting studies commissioned and all of that. Obviously we have a social bias towards, well, being sociable, being extroverted. Historically, that's been the case. Do you think that there might almost be a lack of research into the benefits of alone time because it's less socially acceptable to even suggest that as an idea compared to the benefits of say being sociable? Yeah, Francesca, I think it just really requires us to have more specificity and nuance in our research that I'm not sure we've reached yet, right? Because there's a lot of research on loneliness. And I don't think that's what you're getting at when you say alone time, right? Like loneliness is when you desire more social connection than you have. And I would say maybe alone time in the ways that we're talking about it now is a state where you don't desire more social connection and you're just enjoying the state of being alone. And I don't know if we really piece that apart, right? This, just the idea that like spending time alone can be qualitatively different depending on the timing, depending on your own personality, depending on your mood, depending on what your personal needs are. And so I think a lot of this research on loneliness and isolation and how harmful it is, and it is quite toxic for us, honestly, it's very toxic, you know, similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day, that that has sort of eclipsed good a lot of research on like the benefits of solitude though I do know there is some research on the benefits of solitude that that also coexists I would just say that there's a lot more on loneliness Mm, yeah I've sort of noticed that bias as well I don't distinguish like I I used to go through a phase of almost ignoring the research that I saw on loneliness because I'm like oh this doesn't fit with you know sort of my agenda but then I think I think the pandemic I think honestly like the narrative that we had around loneliness that we were talking a lot more about it and we continue to and I think that's so important it was almost, it almost became just a general broad interest. You know, what, what, what is the right dose of social time to solo time? What makes alone time good? Because it really is nuanced. It's amazing to me that an afternoon alone can oscillate from loneliness to alone months in that period. And neither is less true at the time. Yeah, it is really fascinating. And I will say too, the slipperiness of alone time is that we don't always experience it the same, right? Like people that have poor mental health, for example, or insecure attachment style, which means that you have maybe a history of relationships that haven't been the healthiest. 
they tend to experience this alone time more as loneliness compared to people that are mentally healthy, right? Like some people, when they're alone, all of the scary thoughts they've been trying to avoid hit them at once. All of the scary feelings they avoid through being distracted and being around other people hit them. So it's a very unpleasant experience for some people. And so I guess like, you know, I think that's also a question and and I'm not a specific expert on alone time. The expertise is ironically on connection, but like, how do we know when our alone time is healthy and restorative? What does it look like to get people to a place where they can experience time alone as healthy and restorative? Yeah. And actually, you know, obviously we're going to get onto your book, Platonic. I think it brings together two really interesting, very in vogue ideas, really, which is attachment theory, which, you know, I'm hearing about everywhere at the moment and friendship. But you know, specifically looking at attachment style, because I am quite interested in how that might complicate our ability to be alone. Straight out, how would you, in a nutshell, describe what attachment style, attachment theory is? Yes. Well, Francesca, if you'll allow me a big nutshell, because it might take me a little bit of time to explain. So basically the thesis of the book and the thesis of attachment theory is really how we've connected affects who we are. It affects our personalities. Our personalities are fundamentally a reflection of our previous relationships. Whether you are trusting, vulnerable, kind, closed off, cynical about other people, friendly, warm, all of these things are predicted by your past experiences of connection or lack thereof. And these past experiences of connection, they manifest in an attachment style which is basically your template for how the world will respond to you and subsequently how you will respond to the world, right? Because that depends on how you think people are responding to you. So there's three major attachment styles. There's actually four, but one is less researched. Securely attached people have a history of healthy relationships and they are very healthy. They're able to develop close, connected friendships. They initiate friendships more. They dissolve friendships less. I've called them super friends before. Anxiously attached people. They have a history of, and this is mostly, I'm referring to parenting relationships. That's where we initially form our attachment styles or or caregivers. And they evolve over time based on our new relationships. So these anxiously attached people, they've had inconsistent care. People have kind of showed up and then dropped out. And they assume other people are just going to eventually abandon them. So you see that they tend to misfire. They take things personally. They assume they're being rejected even when they're not. And that affects how they show up in friendships. They don't work through conflict because they think everybody will just abandon them, tend to have lower self-esteem, for example, get vulnerable very quickly because that's almost a test to see if someone will abandon them. And then we have avoidantly attached people who their attachment history is that people have have betrayed them and been untrustworthy. Typically, they've grown up in a home where maybe they've been fed and they've had shelter, but there was no one to emotionally attend to them. So they've learned to survive. I need to be self-sufficient. I can't be vulnerable because if I do, people are going to be taking advantage of me. So they tend to be the least invested in friendships. They actually experience less joy in their friendships. They're less vulnerable in friendships, more uncomfortable when other people are vulnerable, tend to dip out on friendships, tend to ghost on friends, for example. So the idea then is not only how we've connected in the past affects who we are, but then who we are affects how we connect, that it's not random. Some of us have developed these strategies based off of our healthy history of connection that allows us to really connect better. Whereas those of us who have had more difficult histories related to our attachment styles, we've developed a bunch of defense mechanisms to defend against the rejection or abandonment that we assume that we'll face 
And these defense mechanisms actually lead to us struggling to developing those healthy, close relationships. So the book is basically about what's the science of how we can actually become secure in our friendships. And there's that irony, isn't there? I always think with insecurity because we all yearn for love and that that's the sort of little tra- you know, children within us. Uh, and yet quite often these attachment styles can drive people away. Exactly. Yeah, because we yearn for love, but we also yearn for survival. And when those two needs are pitted against each other, we see that the survival need tends to win out. So it's only when you can access feelings of safety. I talk in the book about authenticity. What does it really mean to be authentic? And, you know, it's who you are when you're your true self. What the heck does that mean? And I kind of argue that we only know who we are authentically when we feel safe. Because when we're unsafe, we are engaged in all of these defense mechanisms that are there to protect our ego (laughs) and that kind of hijack our very personalities. And so that's why it can be difficult for like insecurely attached people because they're, they're stuck in the defense mechanisms of like pushing people away, protecting themselves, oversharing to test people. And there's this really great theory called risk regulation theory. And the researcher kind of argues we are either in self-protection mode or pro-relationship mode. All the things we tend to do to protect ourselves, like not initiating, not being vulnerable, not being generous towards other people, not showing them affection, right? We close down to protect ourselves so we won't get rejected. But we we don't always think about, well, that actually means that the cost is our very relationships, which require us to risk intimacy, vulnerability, to initiate, to put ourselves out there, to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, right? All of that makes us more vulnerable, but that's the only way we can create true connection. Mm. And so those notions of survival, for instance, and connection, where do they come in when we're talking about alone time? Because, you know, we say survival, I'm thinking survival while you've got to, you know, be part of the pack, that's how you survive. But quite often we retreat negatively to be alone when in when we're threatened so they all it it all gets very complicated yeah that's a really interesting question survival and alone time because loneliness and this is again distinct from alone time but loneliness tends to put us into a survival state because if we think historically if you were lonely you were separated from your tribe you were actually in danger So loneliness, according to the research, it's not just a feeling, it's an entire way of viewing the world. Lonely people think other people are rejecting them even when they're not. They report liking other people less, liking humanity less, liking their roommates less, being more likely to act aggressively because they think other people are are sort of, they don't trust other people. They become more cynical of others. And then that makes them less trustworthy themselves because they're in defense mode. They're in self-defense mode. And I think healthy alone time, it's being able to be alone without being in survival mode. Like the really restorative alone time that's, I think, separate from loneliness is finding safety in being alone and not experiencing aloneness as an adversive experience or an experience that's beginning to make you more jaded, more cynical of others. I think that is really the sweet spot of alone time. Like we want connection where we can access safety around others. And we want alone time where we can access safety within ourselves and feel good and whole and restored by that time instead of feeling like it's making us feel more lonely. What you're saying is honestly giving me chills. I love this. I think it's so wonderful to imagine that safety within yourself. And I I wonder how, how would attachment theory play out into that in that what, you know, what kind of attachments might make that most complicated to feel safely Mm. alone. 
Well, I would say avoidantly attach people, feel safe alone because they don't tend to feel safe around other people. There's always the sense that people are out to get them, which makes them not trusting of other people, kind of withdrawn, not quite vulnerable. And so the alone time is like a, a defense against that or the only place they could find restoration, where secure people can find safety with others and with themselves. And anxiously attached people, they have a hard time feeling safety alone. Anxiously attached people tend to really invalidate their own feelings. Um, they tell themselves they're too much. Uh, they're expecting too much. And they have a hard time knowing who they are because every time they feel something, they tell themselves that it's wrong. They're sort of avoided internally. They're avoided towards themselves and their own internal experience. And I think this sounds like a sort of cruel way to say it, but they almost outsource their sense of self to other people where it's like, I'm not validating myself, so I need you to validate me. I don't have the resources to feel good without your validation because I've only experienced validation through other people. I haven't, I don't have that experience of being kind and loving and validating towards myself without experiencing that high from other people. So they put a lot of pressure on their relationships. They make a lot of demands, ultimatums, right? This is like sort of the anxiously attached way of doing things because their sense of self is literally at stake. <laughs> so um, yeah, secure attachment is being able to engage in relationships without your sense of self feeling at stake all the time because you can access secure selfhood within yourself and not just through other people. When we talk about this, are you able to change your attachment style or, you know, some of us a bit of both or how, how does that work? How fluid is it? You can absolutely change your attachment style. And in fact, my book is about how to change your attachment style. Your attachment style, it's a series of predictions. It's a template, right? It's, you know, you're predicting if you're anxious, if I ask for support, people are going to see me as a burden. People are going to leave me. People are going to abandon me. If I initiate, people are going to think I'm weird or too much, right? Avoidantly attached. Similar, it's a series of predictions. If I'm vulnerable, people are going to reject me. If I need support, people are going to see me as weak, right? And so it's about altering those predictions, making healthier predictions. That's where research to me really helps because it tells us what our predictions are really off, which is like a lot of the time. And in, you know, one of the, the tips that I really like to share that I think can be really formative for helping people change their attachment style is the idea of assuming people like you. Because according to the research, and this is research on romantic relationships, our assumptions of how other people see us are more greatly linked to how we feel about ourselves than how they actually see us, right? And so when we can assume people like us, that, that sort of checks that bias. Not only that, according to research on a phenomenon called the acceptance prophecy, when researchers told people they'd go into a group and be liked, they became warmer, friendlier, more open. They actually were more liked, right? Whereas anxiously attached people struggle with rejection sensitivity. They project rejection when they're not quite sure. It's an ambiguous situation, right? You haven't heard back from your friend in five hours. Are they rejecting you? Or are they busy, right? Anxiously attached people typically jump to the idea that they're being rejected. What happens then is they reject people. The people that I would say are most likely to reject you are the people that feel most rejected. They withdraw, they get cold, and then people reject them in kind because it's like, I don't want to engage with someone who's kind of cold or, or mean to me, right? Why I think attachment theory is so empowering and why I think knowing about it, even just knowing about it, according to some research, can change our attachment style is because we just think that the world is responding to us in this way over and over and over again, right? Like 
avoidantly attached people will be like, nobody can be trusted. <laughs> and anxiously attached people, everybody's going to leave you at the end of the day, not realizing, oh, I'm actually playing a role in this. Like I'm playing a role in how the world is responding to me, which may feel kind of crummy. But what that means is I can change how I respond to the world. And then fundamentally, how people will relate to me will also change. It, it's an opening to actually change things rather than assuming that, you know, your friendships, your social network, how people treat you is completely outside of your control. And I mean, you cited research earlier that applied to attachment theory in Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Romantic relationships. And typically, you know, the way I've seen attachment theory spoken about before, which is why one of the many reasons, you know, I thought your book was so interesting was that normally it is talking about parenting sort of caregiving um and you know how that then translates into romantic styles what made you decide to relate attachment theory in this what seems to me quite a novel way to friendship instead yeah I think at first I was like insecure about it and reaching out to attachment specialists like do you think this applies to friendship and I I was convinced by all the research I read right and I've just been convinced I think in a more general way that we create false dichotomies between romantic relationships and friendships, right? Like the idea is that there's all these behaviors that make a romantic relationship work. And then there's a separate set of behaviors that make a friendship work when there's just a lot more continuity. I realize, like people read my book and they're like, this is really helping me date. And I'm like, well, 
that's not what I was going for, but I'm happy that that's happening. <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. So, so, you know, attachment style, your attachment is sort of complicated in that you can have a different attachment style with romantic partners versus friends. You can have a different attachment style kind of in every different relationship, depending on what other people trigger in you. But there also is a global attachment style, which is attachment style you sort of tend to have um, that seeps into all the different relationships that you have underneath it. And there is, you know, like I said, like attachment style is your template, which a template is like more generalized. Like, you know, when people respond to me this way, this is what it means. And this is how I respond. So the research really convinced me because there's just so many studies about how our attachment style doesn't just affect how we show up in our romantic partnerships, but it just shows up in how we interact and interpret interactions in general. Yeah. And I think it's, it's good to conflate that. I mean, I... I'm thinking actually of Dolly Alderton's Everything I Know About Love, which, um, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it or, you know, seen the, you know, globally circulated series now, I think (laughs) most people probably have. But the premise is that actually the romantic love that she's had isn't the crux of what the book is about. You know, the, the book teaches her that her friendships teach her about love. And I think, again, we talked about permission earlier on. I think even hearing love talks about in the context of friendship something that historic well not historically but in this historical period at least we haven't really given enough weight to is is wonderful that that feels liberating uh, and to know that you can almost gain I don't know healthier attachment styles almost through you know friendship as that reader said through friendship and then that can teach you about love and that that can all feed into each other mm-hmm. absolutely Francesca and if you'll allow me to continue to complicate things. <laughs> One thing that I learned from writing platonic, specifically from asexual communities, I think where communities really push us to fine tune what love is and what connection is. Angela Chen has this great book called Ace. Asexual community is really comfortable and normal to differentiate between romantic and sexual love. So sexual love, I want to have sex with you. Romantic love, I'm passionate about you. I idealize you. I think you're the best. I want to spend all my time with you, right? And what platonic love by definition is inherently non-sexual, but it's not inherently not romantic, right? Like if you listen to specifically, I will say, you tend to hear this more with women talking about some of their best friends. I love her. She's my soulmate. She's the best thing ever. And I would argue that actually romantic love is a part of friendship. Like a lot of us feel very passionate about our friends, similar to the passion that you might feel with a romantic partner. And in fact, Throughout history, I would say feelings of romance were more common in friendship than with with traditional spouses. Reason being, people did not used to get married for love. They married someone who had a family name that was respectable or would give them great resources. It was almost like a reasonable transaction more than a relationship that love pulled them into. And in the 1800s, the genders were considered so distinct, the sister you know, heterosexual people, that the assumption was you can't actually find a deep level of intimacy with your spouse because they're a different gender than you. So they kind of see the world (laughs) in this whole different way. And so where you can access that sort of romantic intimacy is really with your friends and people would hold hands with their friends and cuddle with their friends and sleep in the same beds with their friends and write love letters to their friends. Like it's actually not radical to see romance as part of friendship. It's quite traditional. I adore that. And I love I love this idea. I think the, the phrase you used, false dichotomies before, right? Where we make things false opposites. Again, it, it's just we naturally, and unless someone literally 
vocalizes that we naturally just see these things together and I think the more you almost give us the permission through what you're saying the more we can start to see I guess the romance in our friendships and realize I don't know I mean there's a, there's a slight men are from Mars women are from Venus element when we're talking about heterosexual relationships and that people used to struggle to have that like simpatico in those but I still you know I think I think it's really interesting and I think it's it gives I don't know it gives friendship that extra level of weight um that it in celebration to remember that this isn't the way we always saw it. It wasn't always a downgrade. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, what your podcast is doing and and part of what I'm really trying to push people to do in platonic is to think through, there's many different options for fulfillment, right? Like, I think, for example, we tend to think of singlehood as an inferior form of connection, but the research actually shows that single people spend more time with their friends. They have more intimacy with their friends. And while married people experience a slight increase in, in well-being compared to single people, single people who socialize a lot are actually happier than the average married person. And so it's not that I'm trying to destroy marriage as an institution or tell people not to get married. But I do want to say there's just more options out there than what we tend to offer people, right? Like this, this the adult fulfilling life is, you know, getting married and having kids. Like you can also center your life around friends. And more and more, I think people are talking about choosing friends as life partners and having kids with friends and buying a house with friends. And, you know, there's really no reason not to. And, and especially because, you know, people, I think, that do want these romantic partners are feeling like their life is lesser or they're, you know, bound to experience all this time alone. And if we can just think more expansively, that's not going to be the case. And I think people are going to be a lot, lot happier overall. And so that's really what I'm trying to push people to do in platonic. Like why is our friendship script once a month networking events and happy hours? What, like, why do we assume friendship is inferior, not recognizing we treat this relationship as inferior? We don't put as much effort in. We don't share as much affection with our friends. We don't have as many ceremonies and holidays to celebrate our friendship. Of course, it's going to be inferior. Any relationship that you put less effort in is going to be inferior, but that doesn't mean that it has to be. And if you change the way you orient to and behave in your friendships, it can just be any bit as any bit as profound as a, a traditional spouse relationship too. Mm, completely. And, you know, you say that or one says that, you know, get into a relationship with someone that has similar values to you, get into a romantic relationship with someone who shares your values. It's almost, I don't know, it's almost worthwhile to seek out friends or nurture friendships where people have that same level of value of friendship yeah. as you because you're right, logistically, if someone, you might have a really great connection with someone, but if you're always going to be secondary or you know way at the bottom of their priority list compared to those other things fair enough that's their life choice but it's it, it makes it harder right you you don't you're not talking about the same thing when you say the word friendship even absolutely Francesca this is a this is definitely the dilemma of my 30s when people are you know definitely pairing up and having kids and I'm just like can we still hang out? Like, I still want to hang out with you alone. I still want to travel with you. Like I'm in a traditional relationship too, but you know, how I see, how I see friendship is, mm. I don't know. I'm just really willing to spend time and intention with my friends and some friends meet me there. They do. And some friends don't. And I think, you know, what's unfortunate is, can we say people have really chosen a certain life if they never knew there was an alternative, right? <laughs> So I almost wish that there was more education on like the different relationship options that are available to us. So we could choose options that really fit us. But I think with all of the pressure to 
to have this very traditional life. It's hard to even make a choice outside of that. But I think you're absolutely right, Francesca, in that like at the end of the day, if you want friends that are as deep as as what I'm saying they can be, you're going to have to find people that are also invested in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, as you say, some of us will grow up in more, I don't know, more traditional, more conventional setups, and it, it will be harder to even access the ideas. So, you know, even having the idea out there, whether you choose to opt into that level of friendship or not, is good. And it's it's worth saying for me, you know, I think that actually personally, I learned to be good friend or to value friendship from two of my closest friends who my book is dedicated to, but also who have been in long-term relationships, most of our friendship. And it was almost the fact that they were able to choose me and to choose the fact that, you know, we'd still go on a Christmas mini break or all of that, you know, that, that gave me permission to then give back and apply that to other friendships. So it can be a, it can be a lovely thing, but yeah, it's, it's special. And I, you know, equally, I don't take it for granted. And I think that I don't think I ever would have found it by myself. It really does just sometimes come from having that idea presented to you or indeed you know like I I guess the philosophy of your book like it it's this self-perpetuating loop isn't it about the way we're treated by others feeding into how we attach but then it 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 works both ways around exactly exactly I wonder can having good friendships in turn and you know I I suppose this is true of having good relationships generally but you know good friendships and good relationships can they help us then feel like we can be comfortably alone, perhaps through, I don't know, making us more secure in our attachment style, for instance. Yeah. I can't speak to specific studies that I've read on this, but I would speculate that yes, absolutely. You know, in the vulnerability chapter of my book, I talk about how some of us have this false sense that being strong is about finding all this resilience in you and being so self-sufficient, but That's not what the science says. The science says that people who conceal their emotions from others and are invulnerable are experiencing higher rates of depression and even suicidality. In fact, when you try to sort of push away and suppress your emotions, this phenomenon called ironic processing happens, which means that when you try to push something away, your brain is then like, are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it? And you end up thinking about it more. And I interviewed this expert on secrets for my book, Michael Slepian, because his research basically said that the people that are best at coping with the weight of their secrets aren't the ones that just kept it to themselves and tried to deal with it because they're strong. They're the ones that told it to someone else. And that person responded positively and they internalized that. And then inside of them, they felt more secure with their own secrets. And so I think in general, like how we develop a strong sense of self is through, and this is the crux of attachment theory, internalizing the healthy love that other people have for us and allowing that to be a resource that's then part of our bodies, part of our psychological hardware, part of our personalities. So that's why I can see why, yes, having healthy relationships Mm -hmm. can help you potentially relate to alone time as a time that feels sacred and good where you can connect with the self that has fundamentally been strengthened and stabilized through your healthy relationships. Can I ask you to repeat that term that you used before, the processing? Ironic processing. Ironic processing. Ah, mm-hmm. right. Well, that is ironic. It's ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so we get to a point where we're not ruminating as much then if we then if we can feel safe with the thoughts in, in having shared it. Absolutely. Yeah. Michael Slepian's work finds that one of the ways to decrease our likelihood of ruminating on something is to share it with someone supportive. That is brilliant. So it's quite literally, I mean, the cliche is a problem. Shared is a problem halved or something like that, but mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess it's a problem. A problem shared is a problem muted in this case. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because I think I came to the revelation earlier this season. I, I was I was chatting to another guest who said, you know, for men, particularly middle aged men who haven't necessarily had the you know the wealth of the mental health conversation, the sort of breakdown of our gendered emotional processing styles that quite often when men retreat and when, when they when they're being alone that that is I suppose what you're calling avoidant attachment that can be it kind of opened my eyes to why when I speak to and you know this is gender stereotyping but some of the men that I speak to might be more wary of me saying oh yeah it's great to be alone because you know they've they've also been put that stoic face on but when they when they say it that that's them doing something rather unhealthy which I guess from what you're saying means they'd then be trapping themselves in being lonely or being detached or not being not being able to process their feelings. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. You know, I will add that I, I think it can be healthy to process your feelings alone. It just can also be healthy to process them with other people and avoidantly attached people really kind of lose out on the capacity to process their emotions with other people. So they only really have one tool in their toolbox where secure people might have many, right? Spending time alone or turning towards other people to get that help and and to get that support and to get assistance with processing your feelings. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything, and it's rather boring, isn't it? Everything does come down to balance. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's a theory, I haven't been able to talk about this on other podcasts because we're getting in the weeds a little, but it's called equilibrium theory. And it's, it's based on research that finds that when we spend time with other people, we have a natural desire to spend time alone. When we spend too much time alone, we have a natural desire to spend time with other people, right? And why is this theory helpful? I think because when people pull away from us, we're like, no, 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 come back. I, you know, I have to keep you, especially anxiously attached people, right? But actually, if you let people take their time alone, according to that theory, they'll naturally want to come back because we all desire for the sense of balance. So people want to take their alone time, realize that's part of their process of coming back to love you. Wow. And that really gives, uh, again, this phrase is being used a lot, but the, this permission slip to enable that sticky conversation in relationships where you say, I need space. Equilibrium theory underlines why space is actually a bloody good idea. Exactly. Like relationships are um, mm. more successful when they allow for that sense of equilibrium. Do you think it's easier for us to give our friends space than it is in romantic relationships sometimes? I was just thinking about this, like, you know, I'm a psychologist. And so sometimes I think about things from the lens of like trauma and people that have been through trauma, right? How intense is it for someone who's been through a lot of trauma to have to get into this format of a romantic relationship where you're both getting triggered, having to work through triggers while you're still in a triggered state because you don't have that time and you don't have that space, right? So it can be like really, really tough on people who tend to experience triggers in in their um, relationships because of their past. Whereas friendship just provides us with this distance and this breathing room that I think can make it some people that have been through that trauma, friendship feels like a safer relationship, a more tenable relationship. You see people's triggers come out less in the context of friendship because it provides them with a bit of that of, of that breathing room, right? But what I would want to push people to think is that just because you need more distance or a friendship provides you with more distance than a traditional spousal relationship might, 
that doesn't mean that it's inferior, right? If the friendships are the relationships you feel more most safe in because they give you more distance, like that's a valid form of connection too, right? We all have different needs around connection. And so that's okay if you're like, you know, actually friends feel like the relationship that I can navigate given, you know, whatever my history is. And it doesn't even have to be trauma, right? Compared to romantic relationships. Because I think the thing about friendship that's also really great and also kind of hard is that friendship occurs on such a spectrum. Friends can be barely an acquaintance. Friends can be life partners as we're seeing now, right? And so you get more flexibility to choose a dynamic within a friendship than it feels like you might get if you're invested in a traditional spousal relationship where the assumption is, you know, you are going to live together. And obviously you can break these assumptions, but this is just like stereotypical expectations. And so with friends, you can kind of decide, like I can turn down the dial on intimacy. I can decide what level of intimacy feels good for me in this friendship. There's just a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more fluidity. Mm. Makes friendship sound very exciting, doesn't it? Um, and even, you know, you're, you're saying with the traditional sort of spousal relationship, you'll live together. I'm thinking even I've made a couple of new friends in the past few years and we don't, you don't immediately expect that you'll see each other one week and then see each other the next week. And then you'll, I don't know, and then you'll get intimate in the first few dates. You know, you don't really, a friend of mine, I don't think I sat on her sofa for the first, you know, three months of our friendship but then we got to the you know going over and having a cup of tea and being on the sofa together and that is that that's intimate and I think sometimes we almost jump the gun with that romantic connection I mean there's no there's no real there's no real answer to it but it's interesting to analyze why that might feel like a more safe steady space-filled place to be yeah because it's just and that's this isn't this just doesn't have to be right I mean obviously we can make our conception of romantic relationship or spousal relationships a little less rigid. <laughs> I think that's another option that we can go for, but with the sort of uh, views in place or concepts that we have of friends versus a traditional spousal relationships. Yeah, it does feel like, I think people feel a lot of pressure to be like, if I start dating, I have to see you every week or we have to start texting every day. Otherwise it means the relationship is over, which is just like <laughs> in friendship. No, um, no. Oh, I find the texting every day really hard because I don't even do that with close friends. And that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> me too. Me too. Oh. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of the episode, but I do want to turn this back on you because I, I would love to hear what your personal alonement is when time alone is fulfilling, restorative and, and happy for you. For me, it's walking in the sun through a new neighborhood that I'm exploring. And I think what being alone really gives me is just a sense of presence and mindfulness to my surroundings and being able to take them in more deeply and to take in, I guess, the joy that's embedded in all of the objects that may be happening around me or even the sun that's in front of me to just be with that and to soak that in because I'm not as oriented to, to another person. Mm. There was a really wonderful article that you wrote for Psychology Today. Um, again, I, I looked up where you talked about early on in the pandemic, ways to relieve loneliness without seeing people. And I think one of them was finding beauty in things like that. Exactly. Yes. And why is, is that another form of connection? Mm. Is that, what does that, what place does that fill for us psychologically? You know, I would say like, gratitude is a form of, of connection or 
I don't know exactly the science. This is me being a little speculative here, right? That when we're connected, we release oxytocin, which is a hormone that makes us feel really good, which is why Esther Brill says the quality of relationships determines the quality of our lives. I'm speculating a little bit, but I imagine there might be other ways to access oxytocin, like through gratitude, like through mindfulness, like through being present with all of the the beauty that's really happening around you and really taking that in. Mm, So it all comes back down to getting that oxytocin from other things while being alone as well. Yeah, getting those positive hormones. There's this um, psychologist, Rick Hansen. I think he's great. I think his research really applies to some of the things that I'm saying, but he has this whole framework called HEAL, which is about kind of savoring and taking in positive experiences because our brains automatically scan for the opposite, for the negative, making it a practice of like, oh, that tree is beautiful. Like, let me actually let it, focus on it till it stirs a feeling in me like joy. Let me picture that feeling of joy really melting into my body, right? Let me just like savor it till I feel something. And that's like one of the things that I think really applies to friendship. Like assuming people like you means if there's a moment of safety, registering it, like take that in. Someone smiled at you. You were just vulnerable. Someone was loving towards you. Someone just told you happy birthday, right? Like that's the sort of behaviors that are going to change your attachment style. Cause when you're insecurely attached, you're just registering all these threatening moments that match your attachment style. But could you start pausing and registering all the ways that people are showing love for you until they make you feel something? And yeah, that's what I feel like my alone time I try to do with with nature and with all the buildings around me. But I think we can do those in our relationships too. What a positive challenge to anyone listening to this to go out and, and celebrate all those things and, and rewire your brain for the better. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. This has been such a nourishing conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was kind of fascinating to think about aloneness as someone who's just been thinking about connection and friendship for the past year. <laughs> uh, well, we're both doing almost an exchange from <laughs> from our main modus operandi. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for coming on. So this episode is very sadly the final one of Alonement Season 7. It's been such a joy to record these episodes and thank you for listening and being part of it. If you loved this episode or any of the others, do leave a review somewhere to let me know what you thought. Or better still, share it with a friend who might benefit. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.